Hello, and welcome to another edition of the DevOps Podcast. As always, the views represented in this podcast are the individuals alone and do not represent the corporation they work for. Thanks and enjoy. Recently, I've uh, attended the Predict 2020 conference, virtual conference. That uh, was happened last week. I uh, wanted to provide an overview for everyone on what we heard about the industry. This is actually a conference that's run by a DevOps practitioner. He actually owns the website DevOps.com. His name's Alan. We're going to get to him. If you want, you can go check out all, uh, I think there's 14 hours, well, probably like seven hours of full uh, content. There's 14 different sessions. What I try to do is summarize all of those sessions into a quick video that you guys can watch and get a feel for what happened at the event. Um, so let's get into it. So about Predict 2020, as you can see, you know, we're trying to recap what they saw in 2019 and understand more about what it is they were trying to uh, see it going forward in the future is what the vendors are doing, what they're attempting to do in the industry, um, and what some of the big trends are uh, as we go through the following year. Alan Schimmel is the co-founder and CEO of Media Ops Inc. and owns DevOps.com. They are the ones that put on this presentation. So what we're going to go through is uh, a brief overview of every one of the sessions. As you can see, there were 14 different sessions by a bunch of different speakers and panelists. Um, and so you can, again, if you want to go deep on any of these, I can highlight for you what I think the highlights of each session were, and then you can go and actually watch them yourselves if you want to get deeper into, into the content. Uh, so the first one was Emmett Keefe, uh, and he is uh, an Insight uh, founder of Ignite, Insight, Ignite, Insight Partners, uh, an investment firm. And so there were some very interesting statistics that he gave that I thought were very interesting um, and some trends that he found. So I tried to highlight all of the major points that I took away. Um, the first one I thought was just amazing was they went from there's 200,000 software companies that they find uh, and there's, you know, they find 200 or so that they want to focus in on and then they invest in only the top 40 or so. Uh, what's very interesting that I heard from his presentation was, you know, they're seeing a lot of theater of digital transformation, but not many customers that are actually able to achieve full digital transformation in their environments. And so um, the other thing they're seeing is that really digital and cyber are both merged, cybersecurity are merging in the mind of the board members that they discuss things with. So the board members don't see these as separate initiatives. They see one digital initiative that has cybersecurity built into it, and that, that needs to be paramount for everything that we hear. Um, you know, he brought up another thing that digital strategy, digital delivery are easy, but digital innovation is the bottleneck and is still not working. And we talk about that a lot at ServiceNow about how, you know, 85% of companies that have tried to do DevOps transformations have failed to see um, any significant increase in end to end throughput. And we're going to talk more. Believe it or not, that was kind of an insight for me was that a lot of the uh, folks that talk about metrics said that, you know, speed and velocity is not a great metric. It's a uh, it's more of a symptom than than the actual cure. Um, so if you look at this, you know, he also said it's time to retire this idea of a digital transformation that happens one time. Um, his theory on this was that businesses need to be in a constant state of change to keep up with the needs of their customers because their customers will know the answer to what they want, what they need, uh, and what we need to deliver to them. 
And, you know, it was interesting. He actually called out success being driven by the executive sponsorship in the end. And you need a corporate executive sponsor, someone strong that can be behind a lot of these initiatives. Um, he talked about the rise of the digital native CEO. And he actually mentioned, he didn't mention him by name, but he, he was describing John Donahue, who just recently left ServiceNow and went to Nike um, and grew up in digital native background. And so that's who Nike was looking at to come lead their ship in the future. So, um, you know, he brought that up and that was a, that was a fun little shout out to our former leader. And so, you know, he also brought up a, a number of investments that they're looking at. So he kind of broke it into a bunch of different categories and then went through all the places that they're looking at in 2020 as they go on. Um, not a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, what I would call brand new insight, but it was really neat to hear him talk about his experiences from, a, from an investment perspective. Uh, Charles Betts from Forrester, he actually is someone we're very close to at ServiceNow. We, we deal with quite a bit. Um, he had a great presentation. We've seen probably 50% of it before, but there was a lot of new stuff that he had learned that I, I thought was great that he shared. Um, you know, his his standard message is that there's a there's a new rise of the knowledge worker, which is you're going to hear this this big trend go through a lot of these things, which is um, the the builders, the the knowledge workers, the folks that actually are are in you know delivering the content and the, the value. Uh, they're starting to become the rise of they're making the decisions they're becoming autonomous and autonomy is key in in charles mind and in all of our minds really um independent semi-autonomous product teams need to be able to operate um he brought up this really cool thing that i hadn't heard him say before which was type one versus type two decisions um and how to operate correctly type one decisions being like i'm going to jump out of this airplane it's it's a decision where it cannot be taken back once you go you go um and then Unfortunately, a lot of type two decisions are things like a revolving door where you can go through them as many times as you want, iterate as many times as you want. There's no real penalty for, for being wrong. Um, a lot of us in operations will treat everything as a type two decision. I thought it was neat how he framed it up that we have to be able to differentiate between what is truly a type one and what is a type two. Um, he was the first person to bring up that business value will overtake velocity as a metric of choice. Um, there's been a lot of discussions about the door report and that being one of the four key metrics is uh, release frequency and you're going to see you're going to hear from probably out of 14 speakers i think probably six or seven of them mentioned that uh, velocity is not a great metric because if you're you could be delivering anything but are you delivering value is really what the key new message is for 2020. Um, digital product management is taking over it and really the thing that i saw that i i was really um, it was new and i liked it was the talk of there's a new governance model that's that's emerging and that needs to be there. And it's principled, dynamic, emergent, and automated are those kind of four key tenets that he said for the new governance. And the other thing that I thought was interesting was they brought up that stage-gated governance is the trend for 2020. Plan, build, run is, is dying. It's coming to an end. It's no longer just about plan, build, run being separate, you know, little stables. This is stage-gated governance is really the key for a continual uh, release cycle loop that we always draw our little DevOps infinity uh, cube there. Dynamic governance is key. Um, you know, he talks about the fact that he had heard a quote before called that said complex systems have emergent properties that's coming out of a, a site reliability engineer and that chaos engineering will become a recognized control uh, control strategy in the future. There was this talk of, you know, the org and this this again permeated numerous conversations about how dev test stage QA, all these things may go away and people will develop and push straight into production and chaos engineering will become the new standard is that we will test in production and we'll have strategies and platforms and cloud native in platforms and cloud native environments that allow for us to do that and do that safely. Um, and then he said, called out really, um, 
SRE is the beginning of a, of a future initiative that really is resilience engineering. That is the future. Um, and then his quote that he's known for uh, in for this last year is uh, in, upcoming year rather is operations is product discovery. Uh, so he can go into great depth on that. And if you are interested, I would highly recommend. It was a great presentation that Charles gave as usual. Um, Dr. Wing gave a presentation on predictions of the future of cybersecurity. Um, this was, it was interesting. A lot of, there was a lot of security conversations in this one. It was a big push for what are we going to do about DevSecOps and uh, just how is security being in, invested in all in this. And some of her key takeaways were really around that GDPR was a big push uh, in the world of cybersecurity. Roughly $7 billion was spent in 2018. Uh, she doesn't have the 2019 numbers yet, but that's pretty incredible. Um, there's a new compliance strategy that's being discussed by the U.S. for having a, an actual national level of compliance, similar to GDPR, how it started in Europe and is sort of permeating over here. Um, it's mostly about data and the fact that not a lot of companies have fully understand where data is, where it's going, how it's being used, etc. Um, figuring out what metrics you should be tracking as a team was very important for her. And then these these second things I thought were very important is discussion about automation was key, automating security. Um, you're going to hear now with a lot of these other folks is that it was shifting security left, which means in the chain from ideation to delivery to production, well, I guess left would be your guys' over here. Um, but so it was, you know, from ideation to production, the entire stages of CICD, it was the conversation of uh, security and SecOps is really going to start moving more and more into just being embedded into that development cycle. There will no longer be this separation uh, or an after effect. It will be part of the actual development uh, CICD pipeline, um, which is, is definitely a, a 2020 prediction that I agree with. And then understanding assets and maintaining an asset inventory. Um, there's another presentation in here that is specifically around um, the fact that one of the biggest vulnerabilities in organizations today are, are devices, uh, whether they're cell phones or whether they're literally polycom devices, whatever. Um, so understanding the assets you have in an organization and maintaining that I thought was really important because we believe that, you know, asset management and software asset management are both very key uh, for most companies that they really need that in place. Um, her prediction was that in 2020, there will be a major event happen in mismanagement of a supply chain risk breakdown and really how to third manage third parties and supply chain risk was really interesting. You know, it brings me to mind that we do a lot with vendor management and that's always a big discussion for us. Um, she was excited about, you know, deep fake in 2019 and is curious to see what comes out in 2020 and thinks it'll be really interesting uh, from a future perspective. Sid was, is the co-founder and CEO of GitLab. Uh, GitLab is a very unique customer uh, organization. They basically have a 100% uh, remote company. They don't have a headquarters. And so the, his entire conversation was building the organization of tomorrow today. Um, you know, a lot of the things are pretty um, common sense of how to try and overcome the challenges of feeling isolated and not connected when you're remote. But when the entire company is remote, um, it's a fair playing ground. And I thought that was really neat. And they came up with this idea of a centralized handbook, which is, it seems like kind of just like a, a ledger, which is an ongoing running ledger of everything that everybody's doing um, and how they maintain consistency. Uh, I need to go personally read more about how they do that because I thought that was very neat because, you know, if you create a deck, or a presentation or some sort of materials that you want to send around, they don't really like that. They say, did you put it in the handbook? Um, so you have to get it in the handbook before you message it, which was which was neat. Um, video obviously is a must for effective remote com uh, collaboration. I think that's very true. So you can read people's faces and see if somebody's tuned out or asleep or paying attention to you or nodding or whatever. Uh, that human connection, that feedback is, is something that's underestimated. Um, 
some of the interesting things for him saying is that he thinks 100% remote company is possible from a startup, but it'd be very challenging for like a Bank of America to try and, and be turn 100% remote. Um, but that causes a huge challenge because a lot of the up and coming talent of the industry, as well as the, the aged talent in the industry, um, they want to work in places that are comfortable and convenient for them. And, you know, getting back a lot of your days, losing the commute, um, being able to work from anywhere, you know, those are all important things to a lot of the, the top talent and being able to retain and attract new talent is, is important for a lot of companies. And who are you going to go work for? Someone that has a remote work policy that says work from wherever you are, you know, work whatever hours you want to work, just get the job done, you know, or somebody that wants you, you know, having your, your rumpus in the seat from, you know, exactly eight o'clock AM to five o'clock PM every day. Um, it's, it's a totally different world and it's, it's much, much more uh, attractive to most people to go work in a remote place. Um, communication changes completely. They were talking about, um, you know, one of the questions they get is how do you get questions answered if you're all hundred percent remote and Believe it or not, he said he's finding that the number of questions go down because all of the information is in the handbook. So if you have a centralized knowledge repository that you can go quickly search and everything's up to date, um, you can self-service most of your answers uh, just directly from all the information around you, which I thought was very cool. And again, something that ServiceNow with our knowledge base could be leveraged for. Probably the uh, number one quote of the entire thing for me, I took it outside the realm of just this presentation, but was... His, his thing was, you cannot assess results based on input indicators. Um, that was, they were talking about how do you manage people differently in this world. And, you know, his thing was, we used to manage people and, and still, I think many people do this, um, manage people based on input indicators. You know, are they well-dressed? Did they show up early? Did they stay late? Did they take a long lunch? Did they take too many breaks? You know, those are all things that were, uh, in the past world, I guess, ways of, of maintaining or managing humans. But in the future and in this idea of having a 100% remote company, you can't assess results based on input indicators. And just because somebody sits there for 10 hours and got there early and leaves early doesn't mean they generated anything of value. And I think that that's a very important key distinction um, that these guys made that, that I really love. And I think it is applicable not only to your human capital resources at an organization, but also can be done across the board, development, everything. You cannot assess results based on input indicators. And I think that's why so many people are getting away from velocity being the key indicator is you can't assess results just because you're writing a lot of things quickly. Um, the things you're writing quickly may not be providing value to anybody. Um, and that's that's really the key. And so I just really liked that quote. I think that, that was a big takeaway for me. And the other part they said is in order to effectively manage output, that output that they're talking about, the managers that are managing it need to understand that output. Um, so basically they need to take people that are tenured and understand the roles that they're managing. And so there are people, you know, if you're managing a team of developers, you needed to have been a developer at some point. So I thought that was an interesting takeaway as well. The next one was Mitchell Ashley, uh, the future of DevSecOps. Um, this one was, uh, he numbered his predictions and the, the myth that he started out with is kind of clickbait was uh, that security is everyone's job. And he didn't like this. He says, if, if it's everybody's job, it can become no one's job. And I think that that is actually pretty true. And you, he's, his idea was that you still need to have champions who are responsible for managing that security. Um, prediction number one, developers will choose a security software stack. That You're going to hear that a, a lot. Um, the main person, Alan, has a presentation at the end called the democratization of IT. And it really is talking more about 
you know, the fact that the builders have inherited the earth. Uh, that's his presentation. So you'll see more and more on that. But developers are actually starting to choose their own security software stacks, which is a huge change. Um, the second one, security vendors will shift to DevRel. Uh, that means developer relations. So it's getting tighter to the developer. So no longer are the developers people we don't talk to or we don't sell to. Um, the developers are becoming an integral part of security vendors and it's other vendors in the industry that we have to get them involved. The DevRel piece is imperative for us. Um, the third prediction is the rise of the app savvy, uh, app, <laughs> app savvy security engineer. Um, that's a bit of a tongue twister. Uh, so this is somebody that's actually familiar with application development or at least application architecture uh, and lives in the security world. So this is going to be a person that is kind of dual homed and has that skill set that they understand security implications, but they also understand understand DevOps and also cloud native. Um, so that's coming. And then his prediction for is mainstream. He calls this containers and serverless security will be mainstream. Uh, there's a couple other presentations that talk cloud native, and that is cloud native. The definition is containers, serverless, a lot of these uh, initiatives is kind of being clumped into that term cloud native. So I think his prediction is right on. Everybody's talking about it and it will be mainstream uh, if it isn't already. And then finally, prediction number five was uh, it's going to be key that CICD and security integrate. So security integration will be across CICD. Um, and the theme of his predictions is uh, who, who the people that are selecting these security solutions is changing and vendors need to understand that and adjust their approach. And then the more that security folks can do to support dev teams, the better they're going to feel, the, the developers will feel about adopting them. So it's being a support person rather than being a cop and coming down on them for breaking rules. Um, and then the, the other myth that a lot of people said was that developers truly do want to write secure code. Um, a lot of them just don't know how or don't have the tools or instrumentation to do so. But many, you know, there's not a developer that I've ever met as well that um, wants to go out there and write something that's got a security vulnerability that's going to, you know, cause malicious harm to the organization they work for. That's that's bad. Um, so no one wants to go do that. Um, but we need to make it easy for them to do the right thing. Uh, there I am quoting Mike Wolf from KPMG again. Uh, make it easy for developers to do the right thing. Um, anyway. The next presentation was Mike Purcell. Uh, he's from Red Hat, Chief Security Architect. He had a really very technical presentation about trusting the cloud you can't trust. So he went in depth on the architecture of clouds, virtualization, computing stacks, and all these new ones that, that really um, add phenomenal complexity. And since every layer is an abstract and virtual layer, um, there's so many more layers where you have to establish trust and maintain it. Um, there's a new confidential computing consortium uh, that founded October of 2019. Uh, the CCC is looking at how, you know, they're going to protect data in use, not not necessarily data at rest or data on storage or archive, but data in use. Um, it's a Linux found foundation project. It's got industry leading projects from Microsoft, Intel, and Red Hat. Red Hat's is called Enarchs, which is coming up in here. Um, the big conversation is about these TEEs or trusted execution environments. It's this idea that, uh, if you look at the entire layers, and I didn't you know, have the ability to put all the images in here, I guess I could have, but you can go see the presentation. There's He breaks down the entire application stack and the top two layers, you know, from CPU up through the, the entire layers of abstraction, OS, everything else, getting to application and middleware. And so the TEE idea is that you give access to the application and middleware only to the CPU and no other layer within there. So you can't have any kind of breaches from the side or from anywhere else. And Enarx is this technology that Red Hat's working on that manages, uh, you know, setting up these TEEs and attestation routes um, because that can be very complex when you get into a multi-cloud environment. 
And so it also provides a runtime to run workloads uh, in a TEE. They're looking at WebAssembly as the primary use case for modern applications. He did a whole, I don't know, probably five minutes on why WebAssembly is so great and why the future is there. So his you know, big prediction is that everybody's moving to WebAssembly. Um, open hybrid cloud, this is the ability to manage workloads dynamically from internal clouds and external clouds. And in the future, you know, today we typically look at that and the gate is, well, internal will be the stuff that is protected workloads uh, or sensitive workloads or workloads with sensitive data. External stuff is the non-sensitive stuff. Um, what Enarchs is choosing and hoping to do in the future is be able to create a TEE between an internal uh, private cloud and an external cloud so that you can actually run trusted workloads right alongside your, your non-trusted workloads or non-sensitive workloads in the cloud. So pretty good conversation. And he went very deep on the technical side of it and showing the architecture. So if you're very technical on that stuff and you want to see how that's evolving, check that out. Uh, the next one was a panel discussion, Developers Do Security. Um, it was Tim Jarrett, Ashiri, I'm probably going to butcher these names, uh, Itzan, Ron Harnick, and Andre Bezdedeno, I think is how he pronounced it. Um, anyway, really smart folks uh, from all over the place, different vendors. Um, you know, the key takeaway was this idea of DevSecOps and where it came from. And, you know, four years ago, DevSecOps was really founded after somebody finally just created a website called DevSecOps. Uh, before that, they were calling it Rugged Def DevOps, SecOps, DevSec. You know, we've met with a lot of these things. Um, but it's basically just talking about the fact that DevOps should not exist without security being embedded into it. Now, I think you could just say DevOps and understand that security is built, built into that. Um, but I think maybe that'll be the transition over the next couple of years when we do that. So big takeaways, security vulnerability testing is being built into development pipelines. So it's shifting left. And uh, one of the really funny quotes that was a takeaway from the was that somebody said, uh, I want to shift security so far left that I get into the developers' brains. <laughs> so they want the developers, as they're writing code in their brains and thinking of how to solve things, be thinking of security and, and staying uh, security-minded. So uh, it was an interesting push, but that has definitely been echoed through a lot of these presentations is we want to shift security left um, just as far as we shift control for DevOps. Um, and again, it's the interesting thing is there in order to get to developers to do security and have it be built in, you've got to make it uh, apt and easy to use. So you got to design security tools for their security skill level of developers and DevOps teams. There's a myth that developers don't care about security. They do care, um, but they tend to care more about agility because that's how they're measured. Again, if we make it easier for devs to write secure code, that's really the key. And the agility thing, you know, there's going to be a shift in that over the next couple of years where we, we rate them more on value they've delivered. And I think value will have security built into it native, you know, inherently um, versus I pushed out 10, you know, releases this week and eight of them had security vulnerabilities and I didn't care because I measured on how many pushes I do to production a week. Um, so again, it's this behavioral shift. Um, but that's really the idea is that we, we have to get the security easy and built right into the, the core CICD. And again, developers live in a world of IDEs, CI/CD pipelines. You have to be able to embed security tools in there uh, just seamlessly and natively as part of those tool chains. Um, and then, you know, I think it's more and more about having providing feedback to the devs as well of if you do this kind of, uh, you know, even having pattern recognition, perhaps that says if you write this type of a, a looped code, you're opening a security vulnerability that allows you to do whatever. Or if you pass this as basic auth, you know, just having that stuff built into their IDEs, into their their development environments saying, hey, do you really want to do this? This is 
like a security 101 and here's why um, it helps the developers understand and then not use those types of things that have vulnerabilities built into them um, so that was a great presentation as well um, this one was really good I loved some of the conversations that went on with this it's talking about is CD dead um, because of Kubernetes it was kind of how they started it which was uh, Kubernetes was such a uh, I think a powerhouse for everybody in 2019 um, you know, it, I really agree with this idea that the builders inherited the earth, and I'll explain more why as we go through. But uh, Kubernetes was one that I don't think a lot of folks, I used to work at VMware, uh, we thought containers were cool. We thought Kubernetes was neat. Um, but I don't think I understood just how fast and how deep the adoption of Kubernetes would become. Um, and I don't think a lot of people in the industry did. And in 2019, we saw that it became the de facto choice of people that were deploying applications. Now, What's interesting is when you do that, continuous delivery um, gets completely disrupted because we used to have to do all these things in continuous delivery that were complex configuration management, environments, figuring out, you know, all the different environmental pieces that you had to do. Um, and it was, and you were pushing these big monolithic three-tiered applications that had web app database layers and all this, you know, things that had to be built in all these different worlds. And it was, it was very complex. Um, and CD, uh, continuous deployment had to be done in a very specific way. Cause you had to understand when I was pushing this into a new IIS server on a windows web server, then I had to do this and this and this. And when I had to install the web logic app layer, I had to do this and this and this. And so you had to have all that written into the CD place. Um, What's really crazy is that with CD, since everything you deployed gets deployed in a pre-built, predefined container, that makes it very, very easy to do. Um, the secondary part that they talked about uh, that disrupted CD was microservices. Um, and I thought this was really, really interesting was that microservices are the concept that I used to have this big monolithic application that had a web layer, app layer, database layer. And then from there, now, what we're starting to do in the industry, um, we started to a few years ago, but what's starting to actually kind of pick up momentum is breaking that huge monolithic service into 10 microservices and then having those 10 microservices be used by other applications as well. So, um, but that actually introduces some really unique challenges as well, because now one mon monolithic app that had a single CI/CD pipeline, once it's broken into 10 microservices, now that comprises 10 CI/CD workflows that have to take place and then those 10 microservices could be part of other releases from other applications that are leveraging them so the complexity of that becomes a new management challenge of how do you manage these releases across multiple microservices uh, so I thought that was a really interesting conversation because we personally have been talking about ARO and release automation and how do you manage this and um, it, it's it's definitely going to be a conversation that's getting more and more uh, disrupted by this conversation around cloud native, um, Kubernetes and microservice development. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting that Tracy brought up was in the monolithic world, you used to deploy by just using copy over. Um, the last version just got replaced with the newest version. In a microservices world, you deploy new containers. So you could theoretically have um, multiple versions of the same microservice running in production. If I've only certified, you know, version 1.8 for FedRAMP, and that supports a federal application that's you know part of our organization but i've released 1.10 or 1.12 now into production that other teams can use because they don't need the FedRAMP certification i could theoretically have multiple versions of the same exact application microservice in place so uh, that adds a whole layer of complexity um, so it's really interesting but uh 
I think the the end goal of it all is how do we move the developer closer to production? And I think that's what you're hearing a lot more of is we need to make it easy and safe to deploy things. And these are the canary deployments, uh, the blue-green deployments, all these different theories of CD. Um, But Kubernetes and microservices were very disruptive and are going to continue to just change everything about the way code is delivered and deployed at organizations. So um, I thought it was a very cool conversation. Uh, Tracy was really, really smart and and brilliant to listen to. Uh, So were Sean and Brendan. They all had great ideas and great history, but um, I really appreciated uh, Tracy's, you know, deploy hub experience with what they're seeing with the microservices side. It was really cool to watch. So check that out if you want to go deep on that that level of conversation. Uh, the next panel discussion was Dave Link and Mark Herring. Uh, the, this panel discussion was lies, damn lies, and analytics. Um, I've already used this quote today, which was IT organizations are drowning in a sea of riches. So you have what they were saying was back in the late. 90s, early 2000s, uh, we, ne- we we could never get data. Um, I was actually an IT manager and an I, you know, ops most of that time, infrastructure ops. And so, you know, it was hard to get data, metrics. Uh, it was hard to get any kind of instrumentation. Um, today, we have the opposite problem. We have so much data. Everything gives you uh, instrumentation and metrics and reports, reporting and analytics. And now the trick is, how do you make that stuff actionable and actually useful? Um, Two of the things they said that I, I'm, I'm hugely in agreement with, like vehemently, is one, real-time analytics are the key and doing something while it's still valuable, right? Um, if you have a vulnerability leak or if you have something that's causing your you know, website to degrade in performance, you, you've got to be able to see that quickly or you're going to, there's going to be a point where just every one of your customers is going to say, oh, their site always runs like terrible. Um, and so you got to be able to do something while it's valuable. and. You know, you might be looking at metrics that say the website looks like it's fine, but uh, there was some, I don't know if it's this, yeah, it was, we don't want Twitter to be our main monitoring platform, meaning hearing from angry customers before you, the tool sets ever tell you um, that KPIs are being broken. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, the second big thing up here was giving data context. Um, it's the difference to me between reporting and be between insights. And we talk about this a lot with our DevOps insights as part of our ServiceNow DevOps BU. But the key is really, you know, even if I took away performance analytics and didn't show you trend analysis, uh, just looking at a number goes, oh, my revert rate's 20%, one out of five. And that doesn't seem great, but I can't tell anything. But then when you put a PA trend on it and show uh, that's up 36% this month, then suddenly you've got context going, "Uh uh-oh, we got a problem. Something's an anomaly. Um, And that's where I think AI and ML are really going to help. And that's what uh, Dave Link was really talking about from ScienceLogic. They're building some really incredible algorithmic insight uh, engines that, you know, he talks about. Um, Some of the things about that that were really pretty cool for me is that the proliferation of multi-cloud means there's a lot more data and a lot more to monitor and make actionable. Um, Most customers have between 37 and 150 different tools that they must manage and get data from. Dave said this thing that I liked is that the, really the, the, the three successful legs of the stool for successful analytics platforms are clean data, algorithmic insights, and automation. Um, I think we at ServiceNow would, would 100% agree with all of that. Clean data absolutely is important. Algorithmic insights, very, very important. And then automating everything is the key to keeping up. Um, they also then talked about uh, time series databases, which were very cool. Mark Herring works for Influx Data. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Influx, Influx DB is their product. Influx Data is the, and so there was some really cool stuff about that and this concept of advisability versus observability. Um, observability is data that I just see, 
but advisability is data that I see and I get, actually gives me some ideas on what's going on. Um, so I think that that was really cool. Um, very cool conversation about metrics, analytics, data. Uh, I would recommend this one to anybody. It was it was very cool to hear. Um, this one was from Amit Shristov, I believe, or Servistov. And this was, um, I, I got to tell you, there's not a ton of note, notes here because this was done as um, mostly a pitch for Woot Cloud. So probably the entire second half of this was a Woot, Cow, Woot Cloud uh, product overview. Um, what they do is what the problem that he has is that unmanaged devices pose the highest risk to corporate IT. The average cost of a data breach is 3.9 million. And most of those breaches that are happening are happening from somebody's cell phone, somebody's uh, bring your own device, somebody's laptop, or even Polycom had a huge issue in the past, I guess, from their having people hack into their Polycom devices and listen into sensitive boardroom conversations. Um, smart devices are the weakest point of many organizations. And so then he did a full uh, Woot Cloud product overview to explain, you know, why Woot Cloud can help uh, basically do asset management, controls, everything for all of your mobile and um, IoT devices. So. Pretty cool conversation. Uh, definitely, if you want to know about Woot Cloud, go check it out. But it is heavily, heavily leaned to Woot Cloud. Um, John Morello talked about the age of the cloud native security platform, which I really enjoyed. Um, he's from Palo Alto Networks. Um, so cloud native, this is, again, that definition that we talk about, which is it's all the new the new hotness, right? It's, it's containers, it's service messages, microservices, immutable infrastructure, infrastructure is cloud, declarative APIs. All these things are what we're now starting to just bundle into cloud native. So cloud native is becoming kind of the buzzword, I would say. Um, and so I actually like that because it is stuff that is natively built for cloud. Um, the three layers is really compute, service, and physical. And so the physical is obviously your data centers that the stuff actually resides in. Um, somebody else said it is that, you know, cloud is just somebody else's computer. Um, and that is true, but the way it's managed is a little different. So one of the things I thought was very interesting was that he said, you know, security does become a challenge in the cloud native world because everything is abstraction on top of abstraction, on top of extraction, and it's all virtualized and changes happen all the time. So it was very much about security becomes very challenging in this place. And what their theory is, is that security is going to in the future lie uh, strongly in the hands of the developer. We're going to have to move it there because quite frankly, if the developer is not in charge of the destiny of it, we're not going to be able to do it because it just changes too often. Um, Security needs to be as portable as the applications are. Cloud native also makes things easier to some extent. So while it becomes more complex because there's so many layers of abstraction, the cool thing is most of those layers are defined by code. So a lot of these containers are pre-built. They're built off templates. The security controls can be built right in. You know, you can start to do a lot of these things where you can be more automated, more efficient, and more app aware with your security because everything becomes code. Infrastructure is code. Security becomes code, etc. Um, cloud native security platforms. I, I liked this piece is that these four things that should be included in this security throughout the development life cycle. We've said that a few times, comprehensive set of capabilities across layers and clouds. It must be app aware, uh, and then an API for everything. You should be able to integrate everything easily through APIs. That, that was key. Um, and then security should not always just be focused on production. You need to move this all the way left to the developers. So dev QA test, everything needs to be secure because breaches could come from anywhere and it's something in the future that we really have to think about is just not just that production environment, but the entire dev world or leading up to there. So very good conversation. Um, I would recommend this one as well. 
Um, this was a good conversation as well. Rosalind Radcliffe, uh, I've met her a few times at DevOps Enterprise Summit. She's from IBM. Um, she very much believes that mainframe is is still the best way to do everything. Um, and they've got some really cool new mainframes that fit in a 19-inch rack. She'll tell you all about them. And the, the second half of the presentation is there's a bit of a sales pitch for them as well. Um, this conversation was named, Will Scaling Enterprise DevOps Become Easier? Um, I don't know if there was a lot of focus put on that. What I think we talked about and what I really liked was that, you know, her perspective was that a lot of companies are trying to make this a simple cloud story and a simple digital transformation story, and it just doesn't work. Um, there needs to be a single corporate transformation that encompasses all the complexity that exists organizationally, culturally, financially, everything across the board. Um, the next one is that the business needs to be aligned completely with IT. And Alan then said, you know, he's got a new term he calls dev biz ops, which again, I think we can just get rid of sec. I think we can get rid of biz. I can think we can get rid of what Gene Kim calls star ops, dev star ops, uh, because the whole point of dev ops, as we kind of use that term semantically is it's everybody. We need to be aligned with the business to deliver business outcomes, to do it as effectively and efficiently as possible, always in a secure manner, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so anyway, but dev biz ops is yet another buzzword that we've, we've got going on here where it's align, aligning uh, business inherently within the development teams. Um, the rise of multi-cloud was surprising to these folks. And I would say, uh, I've actually heard contradictory pieces to this. I hear some analysts telling me that um, companies are trying to bring down, that is true, they did go out there and uh, adopted 10 to 12 different clouds for all these little specialties, but they're now trying to wean them back to three or four different ones. And the reason for that is just corporate negotiation between all the contracts they have to sign and all of the stuff they have to do legally um, between all of these. They don't want 12 different providers they have to deal with. They want like three or four key cloud providers. Um, but the rise of cloud, you know, happened, and it's again another indicator that um, a lot of the folks that are making these decisions are the people that are the practitioners actually needing to do the work. So that's really the goal there. And CI/CD tool selection: there are multiple pipelines at each organization, and you know, a lot of these tools are being chosen by what fits best for the given tasks. So. You know, we might choose one tool because it does .NET really well. We might choose another tool because it does Java really well. I know we did. Um, we had three different pipeline factories, and it, there were very specific reasons for why we had each three. Um, so I think that's happening more and more for everybody. They're starting to custom build what they need, uh, and it's not one tool chain to rule them all. It's a combination of whatever tools are most productive for them, and that's what they're starting to go with. Uh, there's a massive competition for talent. Uh, every company wants to be seen as the place that everybody wants to work because the talent is way limited. Um, I know back in 2000, what was it, 13, 14, probably 2013 and 14, uh, I, there were 173 open headcount in our teams uh, at a big tech company. And, and every company I've worked for, there's tons and tons and tons of open headcount that we, nobody can fill. Uh, a lot of these folks just don't exist. So... Uh, unless you find the unicorns but so the really the only way to get really good talent is to pull it from somewhere else um, and so no one wants to lose their talent so there's this there's this big competition for it right now um, there's also a, a myth that you need to find people that sign the checks and sell to them so they started talking about vendors and who they target and sell to um, the future of this and and what alan really pushes is that the builders have inherited the earth so no longer do should anyone focus on building for the C-level conversation? It should be build for the people that are going to use it, provide them value. If they are provided value, they'll provide value to the organization. So that's that's really the, the big piece there. Security shifting left. We've said that a lot. Um, and then 
Again, we brought it up again. We've equated velocity with value to the business. That is not proving true. Just because you can go fast doesn't mean you're delivering good things. So, and that's was, uh, I think what Rosalind said was the frequency of delivery to production is not necessarily a good measure uh, if what you are delivering provides no value. So I thought that was well said. Um, and it was said a number of times throughout this entire conference. Um, the next one, uh, Ming Gong was, did a phenomenal presentation on, if you're in advisory consulting, you would love this presentation. Uh, it was deep into the digital agility who are an advisory consulting uh, team. It's their transformation manifesto, their framework and their predictions. And so uh, a lot of their predictions were that I found interesting where future application development focus is shifting more to assembling components rather than creating from scratch. And I, I think that's very true when you shift to a microservices world um, you know, we had this joke about we had over 1500 PDF generators at the bank when I worked there. And so you'd start to ask this question of why would you need to write 1500 different PDF generators? So in the future world of microservices, you never would. You'd write one PDF generator, maybe two or three if you had really specific security concerns or were dealing with sensitive data or had to keep the data separated. But by and large, you could probably pull it off with two to three different microservices. And then anything that ever wanted to generate a PDF would call the microservice. And so I think this is very accurate from a future shift part is that developer focus will be less about, you know, how do I create this brand new PDF generator and more about how do I just integrate my existing application with PDF generator that exists already. And a lot of the future dev is going to be uh, shifting more to assembling the components. And I think that's very good. Um, there was a company that I sat through this year that had an insourcing conference and insourcing is like open source, but it's within an organization. So it's like, uh, if engineering storage engineering builds this amazing script, we should be able to leverage that script all the way over an app dev and vice versa that, you know, you should have a common library where everybody's sharing data and, and knowledge and what they're building so that you can reuse those components between teams. Uh, it's far more efficient. So uh, cloud migration is, is constituting the majority of spend in digital transformation efforts, which I thought was interesting. So he lined it up against cloud consulting and cloud every this and that, and really the cloud migration had a, a massive amount more spend than, than anywhere else. So uh, that was interesting. And the key focus for large cloud transformation efforts right now is value realization. So shout out to uh, Michael Hubbard and his value realization team. Um, you know, really that is becoming extraordinarily important for companies is where's the value we were promised. Uh, I put the, we were promised part in there, but it's, where is this value? You know, we were told if we went and did all these stuff, if we did DevOps and lean and agile and all these things, we were going to get better value. Uh, so where is all this value hiding? And so that's becoming a huge push on this. And it's, uh, we're going to move the focus from volume to focus way more on what's the value. And I think that's going to be the entrance for value stream management as we go forward. Um, accelerating cl to cloud native, we're going to see a huge push for companies that aren't already headed there, uh, going there. So cloud native is, is definitely the way to go. You know, we've been talking SRE, we've been talking about all these future operating and organizational models, but I think cloud native is a, is a better summary of how that all comes together. And I think that's really everybody in the industry is probably pushing to go more to this cloud native world, uh, which includes SRE and DevOps and agile and lean and scrum and all this other stuff that you want to do, but it's, it's all part of a cloud native initiative. Um, cloud Nate or, and, but the interesting thing about that, and then he said this, which I liked, which cloud transformation is not the goal. Increasing business agility exponentially is the goal. Um, and the number one challenge for large scale transformation success is how to orchestrate and sustain transformations that deliver compelling value. Um, 
amen to that. I, I've I've seen so many of these transformations that are just putting lipstick on the pig or just moving the needle uh, or you know putting the three cups in and moving the ball around and hey look we we transformed something. Um, but really orchestrating and sustaining a transformation that delivers compelling value is hard to do and not many people have done it successfully. Um, so they put their whole framework in there and their framework is a monopoly board version of this. They gamified their their framework, which, wow, it was pretty neat. I'm very impressed with it. I've been in advisory consulting for years and I liked it. Um, so they do this monopoly board because you go around it more than once. And this time it might be you know DevOps and this time it might be agile and this time it might be digital and this time it might be AI ops. Um, so you just keep using that same framework and you make sure that you cover every base and go through the, the monopoly board. Very cool approach to the, the transformation lifecycle. And then finally, Alan Schimmel. So Alan Schimmel is the CEO of MediaOps. He's the one running this whole thing. He did his presentation, which is the builders shall inherit the earth, the democratization of IT. So he kind of went through, this was it seemed to be focused more at vendors and uh, more from, you know, the, the builders. So he was kind of fighting for the side of the builders and telling vendors they need to get get with it. Um, the old school was all about selling to the C-suite on the golf course or over, you know, you know, whatever drinks at night, whatever the case may be. But now technology is, is really development has driven a new era of transformation. So um, we're currently calling this digital transformation and customer delight is a new desired outcome. And so the developers have been given a lot more power to deliver that customer delight. And um, so this is one part where Alan and I tend to, I don't know that we disagree. I just haven't seen what he's seen. Um, he is heavily behind open source and believes it is the way in the light. Um, I think open source is very cool. I think uh, companies like HashiCorp have proven to us that uh, things like Terraform that were released as open source and got a groundswell of the bottoms up. Now everybody uses Terraform to be the de facto standard for deploying you know, environments, especially on Azure DevOps, right? So I know we use it a lot in our labs and, and some of the stuff we do. So. And HashiCorp did that with an open software. Uh, theirs is an open core model. And so a lot of these companies are doing this. And that's that's really what this whole bottom half of this is him talking about, is Alan talking about open source software drove a lot of the momentum. The builders have inherited the earth. Um, you know, No longer are they just being forced to use solutions that have been shoved on them from the top down. Now they get to choose what they want to use. And they'll go find an open source solution that they're like, hey, I need something that does you know, provisions Azure DevOps, but gives me the ability to create a templatized blah, blah, blah. Oh, there's this Terraform thing that's an open source. I'm going to go grab that. I'm going to start writing my Terraform scripts. And then pretty soon, hey, have you tried doing this? It's so much easier. And that just starts to build like wildfire. And so that then flips the model on its head. The companies that are being successful right now selling into DevOps, they're, you know, cyber security and SecOps, they're saying are the companies that are leveraging developer relations, community relations, and evangelists. So I think that's a real eye-opener to a lot of folks um, at what I would say established legacy technology vendors is um, this idea that we can't sell the developers, it has to go away. You have to figure out DevRel, which is developer relations. You have to figure out their community relations and get evangelists that are really becoming part of that community and living in that community with them. So they can raise their hand and say, hey, have you tried this thing that we got? It, it would really help you solve this problem that you keep coming up with. Um, and I think that that is, that is definitely the future, is getting into uh, developers' minds where most of the time they either want to write it themselves or if they don't have time for that and they actually realize that, they want to find it somewhere where they can at least mess around with it and see how it's built, what it's doing, and have some control over it maybe, um, being able to do like this open source thing. So I can definitely see how that is becoming the mantra 
to vendors that we all should start paying attention to. Um, Alan's got a really rock hard mantra here, so I, I put it in there and it's called, you make a great product, deliver it as a service, get it into people's hands, the builders, let them use it, deliver delight, and they, the builders, get their companies to buy it. Um, and so he thinks you really have to embrace open open source, open core, whatever, but open needs to be the way to, to get into this industry in the future. So that was a good takeaway. Um, I thought it was a pretty good presentation. It was very much about um, vendors changing the way they look at the world. So um, my summary of what I heard, right? So these are my key takeaways. Digital transformation is not a buzzword, single transformation. I, I think I've been saying that a long time. I hate the term digital transformation at all, but if we gotta live with it, the idea is really that you're trying to constantly get better value delivered to your customers. And it's a customer first approach. And the interesting thing that I learned from this was that they're starting to say, it's a continual improvement movement that puts the customer first and the builders are in control, um, which is very cool. I mean, it is a good summary of everything we've been trying to do with DevOps is move everything left to the developers, make sure that you know they understand security, they understand a bit about operations, they understand a bit about you know carrying a pager, yada, yada, yada. Um, that is very important and I think it has been shifting. So I liked the first uh, analyst that said, the idea of a single digital transformation should die and it should become truly a cyclical uh, chain of improvement. Um, so there were like three or four different presenters that said that and I liked it every time I heard it. Uh, the second one, I, you know, we've been dancing around this for a while and, you know, we've been reading the Accelerate book and uh, mulling over the KPIs and the Dora report. And I think for over a year, people have been arguing this point is that velocity is not a measure of success. Um, you know, if I... And I had this, you know, when I was actually an executive at the bank, we had a software analysis company, Semmel, coming to me and they said, it's the difference between seeing that, you know, uh, I pick on anyone in the team. Colin O'Brien uh, only writes 10 releases a month, but he has not introduced a bug in over two years. Um, whereas Eric Ledyard does 100 releases a month, but 98 of those releases that Eric Ledyard is doing is trying to fix a bug that he wrote in the second release that he released and you know, he's continually just adding bugs every week into the environment. And so it's this idea that velocity is not the measure of success. You got it. You really have to start shifting the metric to what is the true value delivered. And I truly believe because of that value stream management is going to be huge in 2020. Um, it's, it was already, we were talking about it a lot in 2019, but I really think we're going to put a heavy impetus behind it in 2020 is to understand, um, because companies are very thirsty still for measuring DevOps maturity you know, I, we get it a hundred times and I just got a bunch more academic stuff sent to me. You know, how do we measure DevOps maturity? And it's so hard because there are so many different ways to approach DevOps and how you transform. Um, but measuring that maturity and those outcomes is, is still something this industry desperately needs to do. And people are starting to get called to the mat. Where's this value you promised us? Where's this value? You know, a lot of these companies, I had a three-year business plan when I went to the bank. We had three years to make something happen. But at the end of that three years, if we hadn't proved value, it was over. Um, and so, you know, that was a very clear cut business case. I think a lot of companies are do, have done that and now they want to see the value. Um, so I think that's coming up for sure. DevSecOps is no longer a standalone discipline. I think it's going to be integral to DevOps initiatives going forward. Security shifting left. It needs to be embedded in CI, CD tooling. Personally, I just wish everybody would either come up with a new name or just call this DevOps and just put sec, biz, everything else star into that and just call it. If not, we make some hilarious word like DevSec, biz, ops, whatever. Keep going and put like 40 different actors in there. Um, 
But I think you can just say DevOps. And if we just, as an industry, start to accept that that's what we're going to call it, we should just call it that. Um, governance is changing. I thought this was really interesting, but I do hear it more and more that the, the traditional plan build run is going away and it's being replaced with stage gated governance models. Uh, when we get here, we make a decision to go to here. When that gets here, we go to here. Um, and then you can apply automation to it a lot easier. And uh, this, the next part, you know, I've been, I've been preaching this for over four years, is that security and governance must be fully automated to keep up with DevOps. Um, this goes back to Gene Kim's book in the DevOps handbook, where he's got the myth that DevOps kills ITIL, and the answer is no. DevOps does not kill ITIL, but we need automated ITIL. Same thing applies. DevOps does not kill security needs, but we need automated security. We need automated governance. Um, so you're going to hear that more and more. Cloud native is the major disruptor and the major enabler all at the same time. So I love this new term, cloud native. I was trying to kind of, uh, lately I've been all enthralled with SRE and learning more about it, but I think cloud native is more important because it's it encompasses all of it. It encompasses from DevOps all the way through the infrastructure, all the way through to the monitoring, to the tools, to the analytics, uh, it's containerization, it's SRE, it's all of those things applied end to end building cloud native applications and delivering them to customers. Uh, so I, I really like that term and I hope it sticks. Uh, Real-time analytics that include context are key. Uh, I loved that quote, doing something while it's still valuable. Um, I think we have a ton of products at ServiceNow even that have you know, all sorts of analytics and metrics coming back out of it. But I think making those valuable and making those dashboards actionable is really where we should be focusing a lot uh, everywhere in the industry, not just us. Um, and then obviously the last quote, my favorite quote of all the presentations was, you cannot assess results based on input indicators. So uh, just because I have a stuffy nose doesn't mean that I have Ebola, uh, whatever, some, or it doesn't mean that I'm going to be perfectly healthy in two days. So you cannot re assess results based on input indicators. So we gotta get we got to get done with measuring these input indicators, whether it's how you manage people and how they work remotely, whether it's how you fund projects, whether it's how you do anything, like we have to start looking at value as being the key metric. What was the value driven? What was the value achieved? You know, you know, how are we measuring it back to the ideation that we had, you know, us being able to go from ideation all the way through to production. Uh, so I think that that's something we, we can definitely do right with very little effort. Um, and that's pretty much it. So that was pretty much my summary of predict 2020. So help yourself to go look at all of these. You just have to go give it an email address and log in and you can go watch every one of these in-depth presentations or find the ones that intrigue you the most. And with that, I will say thank you and thanks for watching. Take care.